0: the akc podcast an audio resource for staff at king's college london following the associateship of king's college program the akc is an inclusive research-led program of lectures which explores diverse religious and cultural perspectives for more information visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash akc handouts presentation slides and further reading links for this lecture are available on the akc keats area Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here. I'm very happy to speak to you today about... The East London Mosque, a building that I've come to know since I first visited in 2007 for research purposes, and I've come many times since then, and in fact, I bring students there every year. So, just like you have the opportunity, I take my students to the East London Mosque as well, uh, which is really rewarding. So I think if you find this an interesting uh, lecture and you get a sort of different perspective on aspects of this building, uh, do go and see the building yourself as well, please. One thing that is very interesting about the East London Mosque uh, that many people don't think about very often, is that for a very long time in its life, it actually didn't exist as a physical building. It was more of an idea on paper. And one thing that I will be explaining through this lecture is the the various phases that this building and this idea of a building have gone through over time and what that says about the ethos of its its originators um, and what it says also about its place in London, in Whitechapel in the east end of London. Uh, so this will be a tour through different phases of this mosque's life and also something of a visit to Whitechapel as a place itself. And that's very important to, uh, to what I want to bring forward today. Now, the, uh, the East London Mosque is probably, without a doubt... Britain's busiest mosque. Uh, There are many mosques which might be claiming to be the largest for different reasons, Uh, many mosques which have different sorts of claims to fame, Uh, but certainly in terms of people going through the doors and using the various services, this is an extremely busy and proactive mosque. A lot is happening on a weekly basis, and this ramps up incredibly during times like Ramadan. Probably uh, around 8,000 people visit on a Friday, uh, many other people throughout the week, and around 300,000 people come through the doors uh, during Ramadan every year. It's also uh, the case that the East London Mosque has a strong claim to being London's oldest mosque from 1910 until present. There's been a history of this mosque and its development and various stakeholders have been involved in this history and have shaped it in different ways. So it's actually transformed as a vision for a mosque, uh, but it can certainly trace its history uh, back to 1910. Um, and there's a, a book by Humayun Ansari, which I've I've listed in the handout, which is an excellent uh, set of the minutes of the mosque, as well as a sort of commentary on how this has developed over time. This uh, mosque began its life as the London Mosque Fund, which I'll speak to you about a little bit later, which was established in 1910. And at that time in 1910, those who initiated this fund, set out to create a mosque in London worthy of the traditions of Islam, and worthy of the capital of the British Empire. That was their vision. So both trying to to live up to the traditions of Islam and to live up to this status of being a global city of of London at the same time. And as we go through this, you can think for yourself, uh, does this mosque live up to these traditions? How do these traditions change in their nature over time? Uh, But certainly, this is a captivating vision uh, to begin the idea for a mosque. Now, if we move from looking at the East London Mosque in general to looking at Whitechapel in particular, the place where it's sited, I can show you an image of, of Whitechapel where, of course, in the center there is the East London Mosque and London Muslim Center as it currently looks. And the very busy thoroughfare in Whitechapel called Whitechapel Road is the main artery of the area. So that's the the bustling, uh, many buses. There's a market uh, that that takes place there on a regular basis. Uh, So very, very busy, very noisy, lots of ambulances. Because as you can see on the the left side of this image, on the east side, the Royal London Hospital is based on Whitechapel Road. Uh, So there's a lot of activity from that sort of hub. The East London Mosque is another hub on the street. And then as you look all the way over to the right side of the image, which is in the west, you can see Al-Tabali Park today, which is one of the very few green spaces in Whitechapel. Whitechapel is a very built-up area. It was bombed extensively and and much of it was destroyed in the Blitz. And this green space is actually on the grounds of, of St. Mary Whitechapel, the church from which the area takes its name. And so Whitechapel as a place owes much to that green space uh, that you see on the right of the image there. Now, St. Mary Matphalon, or St. Mary Whitechapel, uh, was a, a chapel of ease, uh, which has been in existence in some form uh, since the 13th century. But actually, it was the secondary church of the area. There's There was already St. Dunstan's in Stepney. And St. Mary's Whitechapel was a chapel of ease, which meant it was easier for people to access something that was closer to where they lived. Uh, so it was a sort of the secondary church within the parish, which indicates that this area has had a rich religious life. It's had many people attend and worship and be involved in religion over the centuries. The church uh, came to have an informal designation quite early uh, based on this white chalky limestone uh, that you can see. I've just got an image of the same kind of limestone, the sort of white um, that you see at the left of that image there. This gave it the uh, the name informally of White Chapel, the White Chapel. And over time, people referred to this area as the White Chapel. And this church went through many different buildings as, as one or another was destroyed over time. And then unfortunately, Um, In uh, World War II, um, in the Blitz, uh, this was bombed, the roof was destroyed, and for about a decade it was derelict, um, and homeless people might live or stay within this derelict space before it was completely destroyed and eventually became uh, the park, uh, which it is today. But this is where we get the name of Whitechapel. Now, just to give you a bit of a sense of Whitechapel itself, because it's important if we want to understand a building, uh, what are the streets in which it resides, uh, what sorts of people have walked those streets, what sorts of institutions and, and ways of, of being have been important to that area over time? To give you a sense of that, I'm just going to give you a few, a few snippets uh, of history um, and the major things that have happened in Whitechapel. One element uh, that I really think is important to bring up is the, is the Whitechapel Bell Foundry, uh, which was until 2017 Britain's oldest manufacturing company. This uh, was actually in, a, in another site for uh, the beginning of its life, but it was uh, based in Whitechapel for about 250 years. And this was the place where many of the major bells around England and around the world were forged. Uh, This is where uh, Big Ben uh, was forged, uh, where uh, St. Mary Lebeau's bells were forged. So if you can hear those, uh, if you were born within distance to hear those bells, you're considered a real cockney. Uh, So those those bells were from there. The Liberty Bell in the United States, the cracked Liberty Bell uh, was also forged here. So this is a place of, of major note. And, um, and unfortunately, uh, the Whitechapel Bell Foundry was, was purchased by an American developer in 2017 with the idea of making it into a, a luxury hotel. There's a major campaign... Uh, to save the Whitechapel Bell Foundry, which you're welcome to join and be be part of, so I just wanted to put that up there so you're aware of it. Uh, But it's a great way to connect into uh, the industriousness and history of this local area, uh, where it's been known as an area close to the docks, where people worked hard, uh, people labored in lots of not especially industries that weren't especially uh, seen as prestigious, uh, but really got their work done. And you can actually see... Uh, Whitechapel Bill Foundry in the background, that is where the East London Mosque is. That building is the East London Mosque. So it's right uh, right next to the mosque. Okay, another snippet or piece of Whitechapel history, uh, worthy of mention, of course, is that this was the real heart of what we think of as Dickensian London, uh, with Victorian poverty and just deeply, densely overcrowded conditions. In this uh, area on Bell Lane, one of the lanes in Whitechapel. In the late 1890s, there were 600 people per acre as compared to 56 people per acre in London overall. So this area, some parts of this area, had 10 times the density of London overall. Uh, Horribly overcrowded. People would often not live beyond their fifth birthday. And uh, it was known for depravity, for poverty, for petty criminality, for major criminality. Um, And those uh, aspects of Whitechapel were chronicled in this famous map from Charles Booth that you see uh, pictured here, where the areas with uh, black are the areas of the deepest depravity and criminality. The areas with the dark blue are still extremely poor. um, And the areas with the lighter blue are also quite poor. Uh, so this uh, this was a major clustering uh, of poverty um, within the alleys and street networks in Whitechapel which became famous of course uh, for the murders uh, from Jack the Ripper, the serial killer, the Unsolved mystery and uh, as one more, Plug to mention, actually, um, uh, in addition to the Whitechapel Bell Foundry, there are, of course, many Whitechapel um, tours, Jack the Ripper tours that take place, but there is an alternative Jack the Ripper tour that looks at the stories of the women uh, who were forced to sell sex or who were unable to provide for themselves without selling sex, essentially, um, and looks at at them and their lives rather than this mysterious offender uh, from that time. So it's a different way of getting a sense of, of this history. One more thing to say about this history though is that uh, the times of Jack the Ripper were also a time of major Jewish immigration and several of the suspects and much of the suspicion surrounded the Jews of the area as possible people who might be Jack the Ripper. So there was a lot of concern that Jews were foreigners, they were outsiders and uh, that one of them was uh, devastatingly wreaking this kind of havoc in the area. To give you uh, just two more snippets there was, in fact, a real flourishing for a short time in the area of Jewish radicalism. And there are other organizations we could look at and other um, aspects of this that we could discuss. Uh, but one of the most interesting aspects was the Hebrew Socialist Union Uh, which was run by Aaron Lieberman, pictured here. An immigrant who founded this organization as an organization not based on religion so much as internationalist socialism and held their meetings in Yiddish. And this uh, organization lasted actually just for a year but was extremely active during that time in in getting uh, leaders within the Jewish communities of the time um, interested in considering um, more radical actions around labor, for example, uh, reducing the workday to 10 hours per day, and other accommodations, and trying to convince rabbis and other leaders uh, to take on these aims, which they were not able to do, the religious... uh, Religious authorities at the time kind of clamped down on this organization, and for several reasons, um, it didn't last. Uh, But the spirit of Jewish radicalization or radicalism uh, certainly uh, carried on in different forms, uh, anarchist movements, socialist movements, uh, for a great number of years. And then another um, element um, was Christian social mission, and very briefly, you can see here on the left William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, which took place on Whitechapel Road itself. Uh, You can see Dr. Barnardo, who founded these homes for children and did much work in that local area as well. And you can see Toynbee Hall, the first uh, organization in the settlement movement, uh, founded by a a Christian vicar and his wife. And there were a set of these uh, settlements where people would come from Oxford or Cambridge move to the east end and try to live poor and rich together um, in a kind of equivalent way, trying to, to understand and work with each other, codependent way. These were all movements that were founded by Uh, different Christian organizations or individuals uh, who saw the East End as a very dark place that required some light and some social work to bring people out of poverty and to to change things. And so along the same time, when people were going to countries around the world and throughout the empire to do Christian mission, uh, many people saw it as very urgent to do that sort of work uh, right in the East End of London. Now, from giving you these snippets and giving you a sense of some elements of Whitechapel and some of the major things that have happened there, I want to bring across an idea that uh, was coined by Peter Aykroyd, the historian, very popular historian. The idea of the territorial imperative. Um, It sounds a bit like uh, the categorical imperative, and it's got a sort of sense in which um, there's a spirit of a place or a territory, and that spirit of a place is something about the physical environment and collective memory of that place that generates historical continuities among its inhabitants over time. So there's something about the streets where people live, the streets where people work, which shape how those people interact with each other, shape the kinds of uh, relationships they build up, that those those streets, roads and alleys and pavement in their immediate locality come back to affect them, and they also shape Uh, the ways in which architecture and those streets themselves are formed. Uh, But over time, uh, there's a certain continuity where where places take on a character, where there's certain expectations for what they will become. And I think in some ways, Whitechapel is a place like that. I think there are elements of this poverty, uh, radicalism, this social mission, and other elements of Whitechapel that carry over um, even to Whitechapel today, and you can see here a, an image of the Royal London Hospital that I mentioned earlier, uh, with this Whitechapel Market uh, right in front. So now to try to to make that argument a bit more and to try to give you a greater sense of the of the mosque itself, uh, we can start in 1910 when the London Mosque Fund uh, was first founded uh, or initiated by Sayyid Amir Ali, a very visionary. Uh, spokesperson for the for the fund, who was a Shia, um, and uh, the Aga Khan and Ismaili. Um, so two individuals who initially shaped this mosque. This mosque has taken on a very strongly uh, Sunni character. So it has a particular vision of Islam, uh, but it certainly originated from people who wouldn't fit within that current vision, uh, but had a broad-minded sense of what uh, what this mosque. <coughs> might become. They met at the Ritz Hotel uh, with a set of other stakeholders and uh, sought to create this mosque worthy of a capital of the British Empire. And in these early years, the main individuals who were part of this executive committee were either uh, members of the British aristocracy, Englishmen, or they were people from British India. They were. There was a sort of mix, almost half and half, of people who had a a kind of British imperial mission in a sense of we need to accommodate Muslims, and then Muslims themselves from British India who wanted to uh, create a a place of worship uh, for those who were gathering in London. This was happening not too many years after uh, the Woking Mosque became the the first purpose-built mosque in Britain. A fascinating building that was actually designed and brought forward by a lecturer here at King's College London, um, which is a really interesting piece of history, a uh, lecturer named uh, Gottlieb Willem, Willem Leitner born in Budapest, a Jewish man, or sorry, of a Jewish uh, family who was brought up as a Protestant uh, Christian uh, who had a vision for uh, accommodating Muslims. And this kind of, one would might say, Orientalist vision created a really fascinating building in Woking that I don't have the time to go into detail about, but uh, was the first purpose-built mosque in Britain. Some years after the London Mos- Mosque Fund, which we've been talking about, was founded, um, there were the ideas also for the London Central Mosque. Um, and that A separate fund uh, started to work towards that. And some of the diplomats and dignitaries associated with the London Mosque Fund eventually found more of their vision in this Regent's Park uh, mosque that um, you see pictured here. So I want to just give you a sense of some of the other mosques that helped to shape uh, the East London Mosque in certain ways. And I I also want to make reference to the fact that the East London Mosque uh, does show something about mosque building in Britain overall, Because mosques in Britain are generally of four different types. They can be a converted building, like a set of houses, a prefab building, um, a purpose-built building, like you see these purpose-built buildings here, or a a wider vision of a community center. And the East London Mosque is a really interesting case because it's actually gone through all four of those phases, and we'll have a brief uh, look at each of those phases in its life in the next uh, few minutes. One important thing that set this in motion was actually some British government support for the mosque. In the two world wars, many Muslims served as soldiers, and that turned the tide in British sentiment towards uh, Muslims who were settling in the east end of London and other places. For example, uh, this important official, the colonial secretary, uh, said it is really a scandal that an empire which has more Muslims in it than Christians should not have in its capital a place of worship for Mohammedans or Muslims... Worthy of the empire. This precipitated the uh, financial assistance of a hundred thousand pounds, which was announced in the House of Commons, and helped to set in motion from 1910 till this period that we're looking at now, 1940s, the actual purchase of a building, uh, which became the East London Mosque. And so, in 1941, a set of houses on Commercial Road were converted into the spaces which would initially become the East London Mosque. Um, and around that time, there were approximately uh, 300 Muslims in the area. So it doesn't sound like a lot, but it was, it was more and more evident that it was an important place uh, of Muslim settlement. Um, and this set of three houses became the dwellings for uh, seamen from British India, largely from Bengal, who were settling in the area, some of whom were jumping ship or leaving their, their difficult uh Engine room work conditions on the ships of the empire and actually trying to find a way to settle and stay in Britain so the mosque initially had a role uh, for these these seamen and also provided funeral services as you can see here and other sorts of Activities obviously worship for the men who were initially settling in the local area in those early years now in these earlier years, um, I'll just note that uh, two organizations became very important to what the mosque would become. I've got the names of these um, on your handout for you, so you can look at them too. Jamiat al-Muslimin, uh, which was uh, designed to represent Indian Muslims in London and brought forward these communalistic aspects we need to support and help seamen as they're transitioning and settling in this area. And then Jamaat al E-Islami, uh, which is an organization uh, founded in British India and is one of the most well-known Islamist organizations or political Islam organizations calling for the overhaul of the state uh, to serve um, Islamic principles. So quite a politically active um, organization. And these two organizations shaped what the Islamic Mosque would become in its ethos. It's both very politically active Some might say radical at times or quite strong in its views and and what it wants to do with the state. But it's also very communalistically oriented. It wants to shape the local area so that its inhabitants um, can be fully served uh, with all of their um, Islamic needs and other needs. Finally, to say something more about this period of time when the mosque was in these premises, um, this was also the time a couple decades later, in fact, when um, Enoch Powell... Uh, gave his his famous uh, "Rivers of Blood" speech in 1968, his anti-immigration speech, where he said that. Like the Roman, I see the river Tiber foaming with much blood. I had the sense that we must keep immigrants out and that we needed a radical solution to immigration. I mention this because uh, the East London Mosque, this is a really important snapshot of how the East London Mosque uh, was targeted by anti-immigrant and, and, and racist uh, attitudes. Um, and this has happened many times in its history, but um, in 1970, a couple of years after uh, the speech, Um, A letter signed Anglo Saxon was delivered to the mosque and warned that it would be wise for the 6,000 of you who have crowded into the east end of our capital city to know that we are not going to tolerate this. You will go home of your own free will, or we will bomb you out. Indians and Pakistanis are the creeping scourge of the earth. Get out or die. Um, so that, that gives you that, that, that visceral sense of what the East London mosque has had to uh, deal with throughout its history. Um, that's just one snapshot. Uh, but it has um, notoriously received much hate mail on a weekly basis um, with these kinds of terms. And that's just uh, something of the beginning in a sense. Moving on to a next phase, and you know I've, I've promised that I would give you the uh, the different phases of this uh, building. Uh, you've seen it as a converted set of houses. Very briefly, it then uh, became a prefab building on Fieldgate Street, uh, which actually is essentially part of the site where it now resides, or just very nearby the site where it now resides. Just a smaller street right behind Whitechapel Road. You can see the the prefab building right there. And this temporary structure you can see uh, during prayers, a very popular space for a period of time. Um, also in this period of time, in 1975 to 1985, a group of Muslims associated with the East London Mosque chose to break off um, and form the Brick Lane Mosque instead. These were also Bangladeshi uh, individuals uh, who had more of a Borelwi spiritualist outlook. Uh, they would celebrate the Prophet's birthday, for example. They had a, a sort of set of practices which were different. And that became an important mosque in its own right. And it's just a reminder to us that the East London Mosque is not the unanimous voice of Muslims in the local area. There are different views. And in fact, those two organizations tend to see most things differently in politics and religion. So the East London Mosque has uh, made enemies as well as friends in terms of um, its theology and its political work over time. And the Islamic Mosque has also expanded and grown in some tremendous ways. And in 1985, uh, it really reached an important point uh, when it became a purpose-built mosque. Um, It received... Uh, a well-known 1.1 million, sorry, not 1.1 pound, 1.1 million uh, (laughs) from uh, King Fahad of Saudi Arabia, and around 800,000 or 700,000, 800,000 pounds uh, from local donations. Um, Other donations uh, from Kuwait and Saudi Arabia and some government funding as well. So there were different sources. But certainly many at the time argued that The uh, minaret of the mosque is very similar to a minaret um, at the uh, mosque at Mecca. Uh, So it's got a very Saudi kind of look to it. Um, And generally the architecture uh, looks like architecture seen in many Middle Eastern countries rather than necessarily one uh, that fits this site. Uh, But people have grown to love it as well. Uh, So there are different uh, viewpoints on what it symbolizes through um, its particular look. The the dome um, of the mosque on the inside um, has the ninety nine names of God in Arabic. Um, and when I first visited back in 2007, I found it to be quite a spiritual place. Uh, it's, it was a, there's a main prayer space for men alone. The women's space overlooks that space. Uh, but men were uh, praying in little groups or, or using prayer beads and, and considering uh, spiritual things. Um, and it certainly is a place to visit um, if you've not yet been there. But along with the ways in which uh, this mosque uh, put its imprint on the map, it also was trying to assert itself Islamically over the local area. And many geographers and um, also sociologists have written about the Islamization of space. And this mosque is an excellent example of trying to demonstrate that we are Islamic with the type of building we're creating. This is very much like a slice of Mecca that we're putting out here. Um, And then also, somewhat controversially at the time, uh, they were able to get permission to broadcast the call to prayer. And so the area is also this sort of auditory space of the area also has, um, at the sociable hours of the day, a call to prayer um, so that people can hear this and know that it's time to, to go to the mosque. Um, And increasingly, uh, the call to prayer is the adhan. Increasingly, uh, the area over the years uh, developed more Islamic stores, Uh, more and more people would uh, congregate uh, so that you could see many, many Muslims come to the East London Mosque on a regular basis, and it became something of an Islamic quarter. Um, Obviously, many types of people live in that area, Uh, but uh, the East London Mosque has been able to um, assert something of an Islamic presence in the physical and other aspects of the local area. And then the final phase, we've gone through the use of some housing. We've gone through a prefab building. We went to uh, this purpose-built building. The final phase of major significance uh, was the London Muslim Centre, where a full community centre Uh, with many different facilities, was developed in the local area. Leading up to this, around 1999, there was uh, a lot of argument around the parking area. There's there's a sort of parking lot in the area just to the west of the mosque, um, and there there were plans to redevelop that as expensive flats. The East London Mosque was very interested in expanding and uh, having this community center space, And it very astutely chose to work with an emerging organization uh, called Telco, uh, which has grown to become also London Citizens, uh, so a a community organizing organization. Uh, You can see Neil Jameson uh, is the man that's that's the largest in this photo, in the foreground of this photo here, the, the founder of Telco. And that's an organization which does community organizing, working with labor unions, religious congregations, other groups of people to try to have leverage in politics. And what was so clever about working with this organization is that uh, that meant that uh, there was a wider representation, a sort of call to arms across the uh, local area. And often the representatives um, at different meetings wouldn't be Muslims themselves. In fact, at a very famous uh, meeting, a nun came to represent the East London Mosque and advocate for their position. Um, So it's a a very very savvy and interesting way to uh, argue for the need for the London Muslim Centre. And you can even see in this photo some activism. You can see no to private development, yes to community building, and then on the side of the mosque... Essentially, I think, we need our prayer space, don't suffocate us. Uh, So that's a little bit that you might not be able to read very easily there. That was initially contested by the council. Uh, There was a lot more activism. You can see some activists over on on Brick Lane here who are fighting for community space for the mosque. But eventually the tide turned uh, so that uh, the local council got on side and agreed that this, this area could be purchased and the redevelopment could happen. And in fact, very shortly after this, Tower Hamlets Council started to celebrate this as a result of innovative joint working. Um, and promoting racial equality for community cohesion. So there were, there were ways in which the, the narrative changed as the uh, council realized uh, who the winners would be. And then uh, we saw the building and development of the... Uh, the London Muslim Center. Uh, Prince Charles came to its opening um, and has come many times, in fact. He's I've been, you know, three or four times, but for Charles that's quite a quite a lot. Um, he's been a, a major proponent of the East London Mosque and um, has also said that as monarch um, he would move from being the official title of the defender of the faith, quite a Christian phrase, uh, to the defender of faith. I'm not sure if that is something he will go through with, but he's got this sense that multi-faith Britain needs to be defended. And uh, showing uh, himself at the mosque has been an important part of that. The mosque has also ha- had many dignitaries and-, and others over time. The current prime minister was there when he was mayor of London. Uh, so it's it's been quite a shift and change in power balance as the mosque became a really important voice in the local area for the local council, and a hub for all kinds of community activities, uh, really transforming its role on the map. The other thing to to mention here is that when the mosque received more and more attention, it also received attention for some really disturbing reasons. And so increasingly since 2004, uh, different commentators have argued that the mosque is a, a space of extremism, um, its association with jamaat islami is seen as, as quite a radical and radicalizing influence, some would say. And there have been individuals who attended the mosque or were associated with the mosque in some kind of way uh, who eventually went on to commit acts of uh, terrorist violence. Uh, the mosque very rightly says that they, they cannot control who enters the mosque, that it's it's a prayer space where many people can come. And they actually were very good at fighting off um, organizations like al-Muhajirun for a, a long time. But arguments still remain on both sides about is this a mosque with quite a strict um, conservative radicalizing point of view, um, or is it a wider mosque that's facing the world? There's a lot uh, to argue about and many different positions that I can't uh, all raise here. The mosque, at the same time, has become a center of focus for media for all different types of reasons. So whenever uh, there's an interest in, in talking about what Muslims think, as if one could you know, have one view on that, the mosque becomes a site where uh, journalists will go and they'll, they'll often do some kind of debate or so- something like that. During the terrorist attacks in uh, New Zealand or in the, in the aftermath of that, as has happened many times... Uh, politicians, senior politicians have gathered around the mosque to condemn terrorism and to join in solidarity. So those are the images you actually see here. These police are coming to protect the mosque and uh, the Bishop of London, the Mayor of London, Rushnar Ali MP and others are coming to speak about that atrocity. Uh, So certainly the, the, the East London mosque has taken a very important if not uncontroversial, place on a national stage um, and sometimes much more widely. It's a very reported on and uh, disagreed about uh, institution. In terms of its its buildings and how things have changed in the past few years, you can see here an image of the different parts of the mosque campus. Uh, You can see, of course, the mosque itself, Uh, with the prayer space that's oriented with that dome towards Mecca. Then the next development, which was very important um, after the mosque, was to the right of this image here, which is the London Muslim Centre. It has that white entrance, and then the buildings all the way to the right um, have a great deal of offices and other spaces, library, school, etc., and then in the back uh, left of the image is the building, which at the bottom houses uh, funeral services and other things, but it's quite well known as the, as the space of the Mariam Center, a center for women, demonstrating here that this mosque caters to women probably more than any other mosque in the country in terms of the, the quality of its facilities. So um, it's a very sex-segregated mosque, but uh, women have a very prominent role in its governance um, and um, excellent facilities that you see in the back there. So this mosque has, has changed uh, quite dramatically over time and taken a larger and larger role in the local community. And um, I hesitate to try to name uh, many of the services it provides because they are so extensive, and I, I always leave many of them out. But today, uh, they provide uh, funeral services, uh, schools, daycare facilities, housing. Um, they put, uh, provide offices for many organizations, including the global humanitarian relief organization, Muslim Aid. They have a sex-segregated gym, uh, so they've got women and men's gyms. A wide range of youth activities. Uh, if you're a young person in the area and you want to do something exciting or fun, there's a lot that's available there. Drug rehabilitation, employment advice, marriage advice, pro bono legal aid, um, and they have a beehive, set of beehives for honey. And so they, they provide honey to, uh, to diff- different dignitaries who visit. But it's also a broader symbol that this mosque is like a hive with the bees coming in and out all the time. It's a very active space. Um, and that kind of buzzing energy uh, of trying to build something together is what uh, they want you to see through this image of the beehive. So that gives you some sense of of the wide range of ways that the London Muslim Centre is um, very active with all different segments, ages and groups in society. And there's much more um, that we could say about that as well. So if we jump ahead, um, as we have been doing, to this mosque and its impact on the map today. I have an image here from the pub, uh, a Victorian pub. Um, that was across the road from the mosque for quite a long time. So it's uh, it closed recently. It was called Indo. This might seem to be a real juxtaposition, but I actually think this this image is is nice in some ways because this uh, pub has stood for a very long time. It's witnessed Whitechapel life since the Victorian times, um, and the mosque is a new neighbor for it. But maybe the same forces, maybe some of the same types of ways of living um, have existed throughout this time uh, within Whitechapel. There might be ways um, that there is some continuity here. It is certainly the case that the East London Mosque has shaped a kind of Islamization of space in the local area. It's certainly the case that Uh, The local streets have taken on a more Islamic flavor in the way that people dress, in the kinds of shopping that's available, in the way that people congregate with each other in many cases, Uh, but not a fully dominant uh, form either. There's a lot of different types of people who live in Whitechapel. Yet at the same time, um, it's also the case that despite what may look like change in many ways, um, Islamic Whitechapel carries forward many of the aspects of Uh, social change and social mission, uh, radicalism, many of the aspects of industriousness, and um, also dealing with the fact of poverty, dealing with the fact that Whitechapel is still a place with strong relative poverty. So it may be that though in form um, it looks perhaps quite different, the territorial imperative uh, continues until today, and perhaps Islamic Whitechapel is not so different after all. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking.